Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We are in our fourth week on the book of Judges, and uh, this is our fourth Sunday morning looking at Judges, and this morning we are going to get to the first one. So the past three weeks have been sort of the prologue for the rest of the book. It's the setup, and now we're going to meet our first judge. So if you're willing and able, please stand with me. If you have a Bible, turn to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. So those who had not experienced it formerly, uh, those who had not experienced it formerly, rather, these nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebohamath. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rushathame, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rushathame eight years. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer from the son, for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rushathame, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. So he prevailed over Cushan Rushathame. Then the land had rest for 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kenez, died. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would settle our minds and hearts to hear from you this morning. I pray that as we look at these verses and as we draw application for our lives from them, that your Holy Spirit would be working with power. Father, may we love your word. May we treasure your word. May it be the pearl of great price that we sell all other things behind, sell off and to pursue. And Father, I pray that we would apply your word to our minds and hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In the passage that we have just read together, we are introduced to the first judge, the first deliverer that God sends to the people of Israel. And it's the same guy we met actually a couple of weeks ago. His name is Othniel. 
He was that valiant, brave, young soldier that took Caleb up on his offer for marriage to the daughter. Caleb said, whoever is willing to go up against this city and defeat it can have my daughter to be his wife, as a wife. And Othniel raised his hand and said, I'll do it. This is that man. This is that man. This is the first judge we're going to meet, and he is the example that everyone else will fall short of. On Christmas, who likes it when you open your biggest, best present first? Anyone? Uh, a couple of hands, sheepishly. Yeah, I see you. Well, the majority have it. The majority don't like opening the biggest and best present first, but that's what we have in the book of Judges, all right? The best judge is coming at us right at the beginning, and everyone else is sort of going to fall short of his example. But what's interesting about this story is that there's not much of a story to it. There's no dialogue. There's no plot. There's no real interaction. We aren't even told anything that Othniel says. We just are told a couple of details about him, and that's it. There isn't anything flashy about this guy, but there is simple faith, simple obedience, trust in God, and in turn, he is used by God in a mighty and a powerful way in the life of Israel. And he judges and rules over Israel for a period of 40 years until he is called home by God. But what is the situation that leads up to Othniel, the son of Kenez, coming and being put in the seat of judge in the life of the nation of Israel in the first place? What are the circumstances around which Othniel was made a deliverer? There were a few of them. We read down through them. I just want to highlight them again. First, the nation of Israel, unbelievably, has failed to learn war. They don't know how to defend themselves. They don't know how to fight. Verse 1 and 2 actually repeat this fact twice. It's very clear. They don't know war. Then God leaves some nations in the land, in the territory, to test Israel, to see if they will call out to God, to see if they will be willing to obey him. But instead of doing that, instead of doing so, they actually go in the opposite direction of repentance. They run right into intermarriage with the Canaanites and the people of those lands. They double down. So God is angered by their disobedience. He sells them into the hands of this king of Mesopotamia. And they cry out to God. God raises up Othniel. That is the cycle. We've come all the way around. Othniel defeats the king, and like was mentioned in, in, our, in our class before the service began, that is the cycle that we see throughout history, right? The rise and fall due to our sin, we, we fall, and then in, and when we're in the dust, we cry out to God, he restores, and then we can tend to grow proud again. That was highlighted in, in our class. Think about what we are told, though, in verse 1 and 2. There arose a generation who didn't know war. They hadn't been taught war. This is incredible. In Judges chapter 1, verse 1, we're told the very first thing that the, that the Israelites did was when they got into the land in Judges is they said, who should go up to fight? The tribe of Judah was selected. That was a mere two chapters ago. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, we are told that whole generations of Israelites don't know what warfare is. I want you to think about that contrast. I want you to think about that descent from chapter 1, from where they're saying, who should go up first to chapter 3, verse 1, where they don't know what warfare is. They don't have any experience in it. They don't know how to do it. It's an unbelievable shift. And here's the thing. It doesn't take very much time for that to happen. The other thing to notice is this idea of generations. Look at the first couple verses. This wasn't a group of pacifists in the midst of Israel that was refusing to take up the sword and to fight. It was a whole generation of Israelites who didn't know how. There's a difference. God promises to work generationally. And very, very often, this is exactly where Satan will aim his his attacks at. Later this year, at the end of August, August 26th through 28th, I hope it's on your calendar, we're going to have a birthday celebration for our church. Ten years ago, we built this building. It's our 20-year birthday, but 10 years ago, we built this building. And in, in the time leading up to the 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 Sunday where we entered this building, we were in a building campaign, and the slogan was to a thousand generations. This is taken straight from Scripture. This is the way that Christians ought to think generationally. If we're only focused on the present generation, if we're only focused on ourselves, what we're doing, we are being short-sighted, and we are failing to think biblically. God is generational. He makes promises that last for generations. He calls us to tasks that cannot be completed in the course of any one generation. We must continue to have a generational perspective on our work and on our witness in Toledo. We have to do this. And in our passage, there is a generational view, perspective. We must have high expectations for the sons and the daughters of this church. We must also train them. Our passage should impress upon us the importance and the urgency of training the next generation to live for the Lord. How fast faithfulness can erode if it is not communicated and taught and modeled and expected, communicated and taught and modeled to our children and the young men and women that God has placed around you and expected from them. It's a two-way street, but you have to be going in both directions at the same time. This morning, I want to talk with you about warfare. I want to talk with you about the need to fight, and I've, I've called this battle ready. Battle ready. The Christian life is a life of battle. Do you know that? The battle isn't geopolitical, it isn't turf warfare, it's not a revolution, it's not a gang fight, it isn't waged with man-made weapons and we don't use tactics that are developed at the Pentagon, but make no mistake about it, the Christian life is a battle. If you are a Christian, then you are a soldier in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ and you fight a foe that is no less real than Hitler or Lenin or Mao. Jesus came to defeat sin and death. 
That is an essential part of the gospel message. Defeat sin and death. That's also war terminology. Colossians 2, 15 says that when Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. And while Jesus has secured the victory in the cross and in his resurrection, the life of the Christian, my life, your life, is a life of battle. And when I say we need to fight, we need to battle, you're going to hear that this morning, I don't mean that we need to take up literal arms. Aaliyah cleans an office every week. We've cleaned some offices over the years of our marriage, and we have one office that we clean. And a few times she's gone into the community room at this office, and it's sort of a, a fantastic scene. There's a stool in the middle of the room, and on that stool lay, lays a Bible. And the stool is surrounded by other chairs. And on those chairs are draped all sorts of tapestries and hooded cloaks, something you might see out of like Robin Hood or Hogwarts or something, right? And up against that stool is a great double-handed, the double-handed greatsword, this big, massive sword leaning up against the stool. And Aaliyah has recently discovered, because she actually met some of the people that were going to those meetings, she's discovered that it is not a group of LARPers, all right? That was my guess. Nope, not LARPers. LARPers are those people you might see on a college campus running around with foam swords in the apparel that I just described. They aren't LARPers. They are actually elderly women, the kind of women that would qualify for that new group. Actually, Aaliyah says the youngest one she's seen is upwards of 75. So it's a group of elderly women who meet in some secret society in there with their Bible and their sword. And recently, Aaliyah met one of these ladies, and she, she, she said, so what's up with the sword, you know? And this lady said sheepishly, oh, that's a prop. That's a prop. But the Bible was a prop too. She made sure of saying, we don't read the Bible either. It's all just props. Now listen, we don't have any swords here. We do have our Bibles. Ephesians teaches us that, that this is how we wage war, the truth, right? The, the sword of truth, which is the word of God. We do read them, but our fight is not physical, it is spiritual. We fight as Jesus fought, and Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. The battle is spiritual. We fight lies, sin, corruption. We expose the evil deeds of darkness. That's what we're taught. It is not a fight that we fight against flesh and blood. But though the battle is spiritual, listen, it isn't a mind game. It is not a mind game. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus sweat blood. Jesus was betrayed. He came to bring division and a sword, and he says very clearly that those who follow after him must be willing to endure the same things that he did. And so while our battle is a spiritual one, it affects our lives in the same way that it affected Jesus. It affected his life in physical ways, and he said that where he went, uh, it affected what he said, where he went, and the way he was treated. So this is, this is why the apostle Paul teaches us 
about warfare in, in the epistles of, of Ephesians and, and, and Timothy. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the armor of God. Now, this is not going to be a sermon about taking up the armor of God, although it should be a sermon and it will be. Take up the armor of God. He also says, Though we walk in flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. He says, finally, the Titus, fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. We are in a battle. And we aren't just in a run-of-the-mill battle. We are in the battle of battles. And the fact that it's a spiritual one only makes the implications much more weighty because they're eternal, they're not just earthly. I think it's very easy, very easy for us to think about the horrible things that we've seen go on in places like the Ukraine in the past year, and as horrible as those things are, to see much more real danger, much more real threat, much more real sacrifice there than we do in our lives. But that is to see as man sees not as God sees. You can fight on the wrong side of an earthly war and still go to heaven. Not so with the spiritual war. In physical wars, you can lose a friend, you can lose a limb, you can lose a life. But in the war that we are called to, the stakes are eternal. There are eternal souls in the balance, and Satan is trying to sift them like wheat. That's what Jesus said. We're called to resist him, full of faith. His forces, though, are very much alive. They very much are seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. And there is nothing, nothing more dangerous and harmful than for the Christian to go through life unaware of the battles that are being waged all around him, blinded to them. And yet, I think many of us would rather go through life woefully unaware. We act in such a way that ignorance is bliss. And the Bible is clear that there will be those who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. But it is equally clear that the Christian life is one where we follow in the footsteps of our Savior into battle. There are many voices today that preach a message of a sweet, gentle Jesus. And though he is more compassionate than we know how to be. This is a distortion of the Christ of Scripture because it is a, it is a message that's being pop, propagated not because Jesus wasn't a fighter, but because we don't want to have to fight. That's why these messages are being propagated. That's why they're selling lots of books. Not because Jesus was like that, but because we are. And we always want to listen to a Jesus and be told what to do by a Jesus who echoes the very voice of our minds. Jesus, this is not a faithful view of what the Bible says. If you're going to be faithful to, the Jesus, to Jesus Christ in this life, then you need to steal yourself. You need to, to prepare. You need to commit yourself to a life of battle. Jesus was no sweetie. He was a fighter. 
He was constantly in the fight, and he was in it to win it. There was never a time where he did not have to fight temptation, where he didn't really have real enemies that were seeking to get at him. Isn't that why he said to the disciples at points, I'm not going there right now, because you know what lies in wait for me there. That was a spiritual battle with very physical implications, wasn't it? (laughs) No servant is greater than his master. He told the disciples, you will have enemies. Furthermore, we're told that when he returns, he's going to return on a white horse for battle. If you're a Christian, then you are enlisted in his army. First John, I was reading First John this week, and this verse popped out at me. It said, by this we know that we are in him. How? What? The one who says he abides in him, in Christ, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This means that we must be aware of the battle. And once we're aware of it, we must act accordingly. Now listen, we have just witnessed a horrible wickedness. The shooting in Texas was an atrocity. It was an offense against God. It was, it was horrible. And Aaliyah texted me a, a little piece of news that she had read about um, a, a father and a husband of one of, the, one of the teachers at that school and one of the eighth grade girls at that school. And this man was a, um, he was a border patrol agent, and he was getting his haircut at the barber. And he would, didn't have any idea what was going on a few blocks away at the elementary school. He got a text from his wife, who had locked herself in her room with her class and was barricaded with, her, with the children she taught under the desk, saying, uh, help, please, something about help, please, uh, shooter at the school or something of that nature. It was very brief. And the article just described how he actually was one of the main protectors. He got there quicker than a lot of other people. And this is Texas for you. He borrowed the barber's shotgun and went there and, and, and probably saved the lives of a number of people. He rescued his daughter. He protected the children in his wife's class. And that's valiant. And the reason it came to my mind was, is that once he became aware that there was a battle, he had no choice but to do something about it. When he didn't know there was a battle going on, he was fine sitting in the barbershop getting his head trimmed. But once he heard what was going on, he had no choice but to act. It wasn't an option to just say, well, I hope the the local police department is doing their thing. He He had to act. The life of a Christian is a life of battle. So going back to our passage, what in the world has happened. In a mere two chapters, the people of Israel have gone from fighting to intermarrying and not even knowing how to fight. Now this is key. This happened because the older generation of Israelites made it through the initial battles, they made it through the initial victories under Joshua's godly leadership, they started to settle the land And then they started to get comfortable with where they were at. That's how it happened. The prospect of persisting in battle seemed less and less attractive after they had secured the initial areas of land. The sense of urgency just seemed to drain out of the thing. And they gave into a life of comfort, they gave into a life of ease. And this became their MO. 
became their way of life. And so when this generation of prime fighters has reached that age, what they've grown up seeing and experiencing is a life of comfort. Now, if you've ever bought an old house, you know how this works. When you buy that house, you talk with your spouse probably, and there's all sorts of things that bug you. The walls are going like this, nothing's at a right angle, you want to move things around, you want to make it yours. I'm seeing some smiles. I've done it, many of us have done it, you know what this is like. But what happens? You close on that house, you move in, you fill it with all your junk, and all those things that really bugged you start to become less buggy, right? They, they seem to get at you less. You know, you're in it, you're living in it. All those things you wanted to change don't the things that seemed urgent, they, they don't seem quite as urgent anymore. You become used to the way that things are. The parts that aren't completed don't really stick out. They don't offend you. This was exactly the way it was with our first house. I tore the, we, we tore the thing apart. We rebuilt most of it. But there were a lot of things that over time I didn't even see, like no trim in the whole house. Hello. Right? How many of you guys have ever lived without trim? Yeah, yeah. You know, at first it's sort of a ugly thing and then give it a little time and you don't even think about it. Now, the problem is my wife did. She helped me repent of this. Because the second house we bought, she said, can we please get trim on before the week that we are closing? And so I said yes. And then I came home a couple of years into living at the house and she had gotten wood and was putting up trim and I started to get the hint. <laughs> so we have trim and we've had it for years. But generally, this is the way it goes. You, you just get used to it. And those projects that seem so urgent seem to be, eh, they're a long way away. In the same way, this is what happened with Israel. The generation of parents have gotten halfway through the project and they've said, this is good enough. They're happy with what they have. They lose the motivation. They lose the conviction to keep pressing on and keep fighting. Now, there's another reason why projects linger in my house, and that's because not just that I'm okay with not doing them, there are certain projects that I just don't want to do. They stink. I don't enjoy them. They're hard. They require me scooting on my belly in the crawl space and getting wet and getting muddy. We just don't like it. And battle is much worse than working on a house. If you're in the middle of battle, it's dangerous, it demands our all, because everything is at stake personally for you. House projects don't compare, so we don't like it. It's hard. The younger generation of Israelites didn't know how to fight because their parents had taught them that there was no real need to fight. And I hope this idea is echoing in all of our minds this morning. Their parents had taught them self-consciously. This is not something that they started teaching them in preschool. This is something that they taught them with the actions and the, and the words of their life. They had decided that it was better to sue for peace. They'd gotten into the land, they'd gotten comfortable, and they'd realized that instead of chasing after the enemy, they could be at home relaxing. They could let sleeping dogs lie. You take their corner-cutting laxness down a couple of generations and what do you have? You have a nation, 
a generation whose prime military population is ill-equipped and ignorant of war. They cannot carry out the things that God has asked them to do. But not just that, they are intermarrying with the Canaanites. They were supposed to be at war with these people and now they're intermarrying. This is the reality at this time and this is still a reality for us today. What their parents gave into by feet, the children took on by miles. And if we're honest with ourselves, and I hope you're being honest, we can relate to the Israelites. They had done their fair share of the hard things. They had wandered in the wilderness. They had gone through those initial battles. Now they're just ready to relax a little. That's exactly what we want to. We've done our fair share of the hard work. Now we want to relax. We want to enjoy ourselves. We've earned it after all. The problem is that the compromise compromises rather and the desire to be comfortable in Israel's parents and in their grandparents have turned the children into these young men and women who don't know how to fight and that very quickly grew into a full-on rejection of God so the compromises and the slight you know corner cuttings a couple generations up have turned into full-sale adultery against God in the grandkids. So we see this pattern emerge. Ambivalence, when there's ambivalence towards sin, turns into embrace of sin. What are you teaching your children? Are you teaching them that the, can- that the Christian life is one of battle or is one of comfortable morality? What kind of life, uh, the kind of life rather, that conservative upper middle class people would never bat an eye at. Is that what you're teaching them the Christian life is? Many of us have the goal of shielding our children from the war that is going on around them. And I'm here today, I want to call us away from this type of action. One of the ways that we do this is literally creating artificial environments in our home where there's never really any threat of war. I think oftentimes this can be done in ways that have good motives at the beginning. And yet what happens is we condition spaces where our kids can't sin. So they don't sin. They never actually get, start getting a taste of what that battle is like. And one of the really harmful byproducts of this sort of thing is that we actually are teaching them through that way of life that the enemy is all outside. And yet Jesus taught that it's not that what goes into a man that defiles him but it's what comes out of a man. We'll talk about that in a a little bit. That kind of life where everything is outside and you're shielding your children from it is, is, is bypassing the most real reality at the heart of the Christian life that our hearts are a problem. Our hearts are a source of what's bad. It's not just what's on the outside. We can't live this way. We can't teach our children this sort of thing. I think another way we can do this is by not confronting them in their sin. I want to say, don't confuse concern with confrontation. I'm guilty of talking with Aaliyah about things that I see in my kids that I have not addressed. And that is wrong. I'm not saying you address things every... But I'm saying do not let yourself off the hook because you're concerned without confrontation. Remember, Eli. Eli. After, After Judges and Ruth, you get to the book of First and Second Samuel, and Eli is the priest at that time over Israel. 
and in Shiloh, and he has two sons that have been raised as PKs. They're pastor's kids, essentially. They were working in the, in, in the church with Eli. And the problem is, is that those sons were wicked. They were wicked. They committed adultery with people that would come to the temple. They were gluttons and thieves. They'd steal large amounts of food from the offerings that were supposed to be given. And Eli was concerned about his sons. He asked his sons, why do you act in this way? But he never confronted them. He never removed them. He never actually did anything about it. And it's a, it's a real big reminder to us. God comes down to Eli and he says, what is this you've done? Why have you not done anything about your sons? Because you have not done anything, your post is going to be removed. You're not going to have any generations that continue to serve in the temple. Well, you think to yourself, well, he did do something. He was concerned and he talked with them about it. That wasn't enough. Don't think you've done your duty because you're concerned when you haven't done any sort of confrontation. And on, on this note, I also want to say that while we must pray for our children, I think that at times we as parents can substitute prayer for actually doing what God has put us in a position to do. I'm not saying we don't pray for our kids. I love the men and women in this church that I know are praying for their children every day. What an example. We should pray for our children every day. But don't let prayer become a scapegoat for not doing what you ought to be doing in your children's lives or saying the things you ought to be saying to them. I think another way we can do this with our kids, and I know I'm speaking to parents here, but there are applications for all of us. Another way that we can shield our children from battle is by not allowing others to fight them in their sin. And honestly, this is crazy. I know why we do it, but it's crazy because this is one of the chief glories of the church. This is one of the things that we promise to do for one another whenever we have children that are baptized. And so often when it actually happens, we as parents are tempted to take offense and to make justifications, or at the very least, when the, when the other person isn't around, we want to go to our kids and say, I don't have any problem with, with you, but it's good that you know, they wanted to say that to you. Wink, wink. And we, and, we, and we sort of undercut all the discipline that is so helpful that comes to our children from the outside. One of the central blessings of the church is that it covers our weaknesses and our blind spots because our sins are often our children's sins as well. This is one of the chief glories of the church that around this room there are men and women that love your children and that love you and want to see your children grow up to love the Lord. So don't defend them. Don't take their side. We need each other's help to teach our children how to fight. Living in such a way that we teach our children the importance of fighting is hard because it is opposed to our natural earthly desire to live in ease and comfort. And so I mentioned the fight in our hearts a little bit ago I want to talk a little bit more about that now. It should not escape our notice in the text that if the Israelites would have fought themselves, their own sinful desires, their own internal willingness to make compromise, their own pull toward ease and comfort, they would have also been willing to fight the external battles that God had called them to. If they would have fought themselves, they would have fought the godless culture that was around them. But they didn't fight either one of those battles. Some of you are fighting and you're weary. Some of you have not been fighting and you need to start. And we all need to remember, 
we all need to remember the first and most important place that we start fighting the war of the Christian life is in our own hearts and in our own minds. You must start fighting yourself. Your own excuses, your own justifications, your own pet sins, your own equivocations, your own cowardice. This is where the battle begins. And if you don't start with yourself, you're going to be wildly, wildly ineffective in fighting it anywhere else, in your children, in your marriage, in the culture, in the church. You might make a lot of noise, but it's all bravado and it's all rooted in pride. If you're not fighting yourself first, all the things you might write online and speak loudly about are rooted in yourself. That's called pride. And God is opposed to the proud, but he promises to give us grace when we are humble. And don't you want grace when you're fighting? This is not to say that we should only focus on ourselves. I'm not up here saying just worry about yourself. Don't, that's ridiculous. But you must work your way out from dealing with yourself and with your own heart. You work your way out from there. Notice in the text, verse 10, notice that when Israel cries out, God raises up Othniel as a deliverer. And this is all inspired, every word of it. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, Othniel, and he judged Israel, period. When he went out to war, God gave Cushan Rushathame, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. Now listen, Othniel does not just immediately go out to war. You need to think about practically the way this sort of thing happens in the life of a nation and a country. He starts by judging Israel. He understands where the fight must begin. God raises him to leadership in a nation where there has been flagrant disregard for God. And think about the implications of this. Where the people have intermarried with the Canaanites. Now you think about the implications of dealing with that problem, right? That's like a dandelion that you start pulling up and the root breaks off. It gets harder. Deal with things early on, right? If they would have dealt with things early on, if they would have just committed to the fight from the get-go, it would have been clearer. But now you've got, think about it. There's, there's families where now Othniel's saying, Rah, we're going to beat them, we're going to beat them. And you're going against your father-in-law. You're going against your uncle by marriage. Do you understand the difficulty here? And so it's not just... Samuel's impression just right, oh, he judged Israel and then they went out to war. He's saying there was some work to do. There was work to do in Israel before he led them out in battle. Othniel goes straight for the heart of it. He starts by judging Israel, by bringing order to the house first. He starts by fighting internally so that there can be the strength and the power and the unity to actually take an army out to fight externally. House divided cannot stand. This is why the Apostle Paul says that he beats his body and makes it his slave. That's 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is no stranger to the reality that there is an internal war always raging in our hearts. The old self with its desires waging war against the new self and its desires. And he disciplines his body and he makes it his slave. He is aware that there is a battle so real and so deep it has marched straight into his heart. And so he says that he fights himself. And if he didn't fight himself first, he wouldn't have been effective in calling others to follow in his example. He wouldn't have been effective in opposing Hymenaeus and Alexander. He wouldn't have been effective in any of those things if he wasn't fighting himself first. So there is a battle that is raging in our hearts, in our chests. And if we're zealous to fight there, 
then we will have already fought. If we're winning there, not just fighting there, if we're winning there, then we will have already fought the hardest battle, likely, that we'll have to fight. Remember, there's a generation watching us, a generation that will follow in our footsteps. Whether you need to be fighting battles that you've made peace with, or whether you have been fighting for a very long time and you're tired, or whether you're fighting but you're timid and you're unsure. These are all places that we've all been. So wherever you are in that spectrum, I want to encourage you to press on. Fight as to win. Run as to receive a prize. Do not miss the end of the passage. The land had rest for 40 years. The land had rest for 40 years. And of course, we'll see what happens after this in future weeks, but we have a deliverer. We have a Savior who does not die like Othniel did. He is eternal. He is risen from the grave. And we find our rest and our peace in him. The land had rest for 40 years. God gave them rest. God gave them peace through their fighting, not through their intermarriage, through their fighting. Listen, I know it's, it's hard. I know that at times it can feel insurmountable. I know that you question your ability to win, but God calls you to fight, and God promises to be with you. Actually getting in there And fighting for what's right is the only way. It's the only way to freedom. It's the only way to peace. It's the only way to deliverance, to joy. It's the only way. Any other way is counterfeit. Any other way is a cheap imitation that Satan is trying to throw at you, and it's a trap. The Israelites didn't achieve. You think about the the, the message of the story. They intermarried. They gave their sons and their daughters to each other. That speaks of peace, doesn't it? That speaks of union, of covenant with these people. And yet, what they thought was going to bring them peace only got them sold into the hands of the Mesopotamian king, and they were subject to his iron chains. The only way to real freedom and peace is God's way. And God's way is a battle. It's a fight. Fight yourself. Fight for the generations that are growing up in the church. Fight for the purity and the peace of the church. The promise of Scripture is that as you do this, you will have the peace of Christ. He will sustain you. He is our deliverer. So be an Othniel, men and women. We're going to read about women that were brave and fought. And in this fight, though we don't want women to go to battle physically, in this fight, God calls you just the same. Be an Othniel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would encourage hearts that are scared. I pray that you would strengthen knees that are weak. pray that you would convict our hearts to speak when we feel the pull to remain silent. I pray that you'd give us the humility to see where the battle is in our hearts, to admit where we're making concessions and where we're settling when you've called us further on and in and up. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be faithful to us and that we would be faithful to you to a thousand generations. In Jesus' name, amen.